Leviticus chapter 4. I'll swallow my donut and start us with a word of prayer. Blessed Lord, thank you for making provision for our sin, that it might be atoned for, forgiven, washed clean. Lord, as we study your word in the book of Leviticus, we pray that you would awaken our own sense of need for you, our lack in ourselves, and therefore our total dependence on what you have done and what you have given for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so go ahead, open your Bible, if you haven't already, to Leviticus chapter 4. We're going to be talking about the sin offering, the sin offering. And within the sin offering, we're going to be talking about unintentional sins. And it made me think about some of the trials after World War II. And um, most famously, there was the trial of Adolf Eichmann. And he and others, they're... uh, what they pleaded, in some cases, for their defense was, hey, we didn't know what we were doing, right? Um, like Eichmann in particular, he's like, I'm just, I was just a bureaucrat, right? I was a yes man. I just did what I was told to do. I did not know what it was that I was doing, all that I had gotten into. My question as we get started for you is, which is worse, doing something that you know to be wrong or not even recognizing its wrongness in the first place? <laughs> Maybe it's a rhetorical question um, at the end of the day. It's all bad, right? But it did get me thinking about that. Um, you know, there's, there's those things that you know that are wrong and you still do them and that's its own problem. But there's also, it almost expresses an even deeper issue when you don't even recognize the wrongness to start with. Okay? Um, that can be that can be a real challenge, and I think in our in our day and age, where people are in many ways just numbed to the truth of God's word, to His teaching, and to uh, how He's called us to live, um, it it can be the case that we don't even recognize things that He has told us are contrary to His will and to His law. Leviticus four is going to address this for us. So uh, what I want to do with with this chapter? It's a long chapter. It's got thirty five verses. And in some ways, it kind of extends into um, chapter 5. Rather than just reading it straight through and kind of taking it chronologically, as it were, through the verses, we're going to look at it more um, from the, the big picture view of what's going on with this sacrifice. To enter into that, I do want to read um, the first 12 verses, but that's going to give us a good orientation for the whole chapter here. Okay? So Leviticus 4. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel, saying, if anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done, and does any one of them, if it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. He shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord and lay his hand on the head of the bull and kill the bull before the Lord. And the anointed priest shall take some of the blood of the bull and bring it into the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense before the Lord that is in the tent of meeting. And all the rest of the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And all the fat of the bull of the sin offering, he shall remove from it the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that's on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that's on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys, just as these are taken from the ox of the sacrifice of the peace offerings. 
and the priest shall burn them on the altar of burnt offering. But the skin of the bull and all its flesh with its head, its legs, its entrails, and its dung, all the rest of the bull, he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place, to the ash heap, and shall burn it up on a fire of wood. On the ash heap it shall be burned up. All right. Thus far, the sin offering. But that's just one piece to it. And the first thing I want to uh, point out on your handout, everybody got a handout that wants one too? Um, the first uh, thing to say about it is that sin is impartial. Sin is impartial. Um, I read that first section there, but in fact the structure of Leviticus 4 is that it um, says uh, varying things about the sin offering, but as related to four different groups. So here's kind of the structure of the chapter. First, what we just read, there's the sin offerings for the anointed or high priest. More on that in a minute. Then you have the congregation as a whole. Look at verse 13. So if the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally, and then go down to verse 22, when a leader sins, doing unintentionally any one of the things that by the commandments of the Lord he ought not to be done. And then finally, look at uh, verse 27, where if any one of the common people sins unintentionally. So you have these four groups that are addressed, four groups slash individuals. First, the high priest, then the congregation as a whole, then your lay leaders or your chieftains, and then the individual laity. What this is expressing through that structure of it is that there's no one who is not held accountable. But it starts with the high priest, here called the anointed priest priest, which is significant because that word for anointed there is the Hebrew word Mashiach. Let me hear you say Mashiach. And what does that sound like? English word that's very famous for us. Messiah. Messiah. Okay. So already the Messiah is the anointed one. Okay. So there's the sense that the high priest is a type or a forerunner of the Messiah which the New Testament, especially the book of Hebrews, is going to make a lot of. And if we have some time, we'll draw some of those connections at the end. Uh, but this is, he's the messianic priest, if you will. He is the high priest. Now, why does his sin need to be addressed first of all? Yeah, he's, he's the one who's doing the atoning. He's the one who's, who's sprinkling the blood. He's the top guy. So if there is this top guy that falls, then all the rest of the congregation, all the rest of God's people are implicated in the fall of the leader. Now, is this still the case? In other words, is it still the case that a leader's fall can have effects on the rest of a, of a community? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'll give you one kind of low-hanging fruit example. There's a, a young lady who, who was uh, summer staff over here at, at camp the last couple of years, and she, um, wonderful gal, faithful Christian girl, um, she attends Liberty University in uh, Virginia, I think. And she would always sing praise to the school and, and how great it was. And the president of the school is a guy by the name of Jerry Falwell Jr. And over the last year, Jerry Falwell Jr. has had a spectacular fall from grace. Um, and I mean, I'm not, I'm not making any judgments on him personally, his faith or anything like that, but suffice it to say, he has really made ruin of the public reputation, but not just of himself, right? 
But what happens as a result of that? The whole university was stained. And this young lady uh, at staff, she told me, she said, I'm just, I'm embarrassed for my school and to be connected with it. It's almost as like his, his fall and his sin has now stained everybody else. Right? And you can think about how this happens in all, it certainly happens in churches. If, if the pastor has a fall, that affects the whole congregation. It can happen at all different sorts of levels. So right off the bat, there's the anointed high priest that his sin needs to be addressed and dealt with. But then also the congregation as a whole, the community as a whole, looking at them corporately, not just individually, but together. Um, I have sinned and we have sinned. It goes, it goes all up together. Then you get the lay leaders and also the individual laity. Now I want to point out the offerings that are made for these different respective sacrifices because uh, they're different for, for each one. So first of all, for the anointed high priest, you have the bull, uh, which is the head of the livestock. I mean, think about this again. You know, for you folks who have a background in ranching, farming, what's the significance of the bull? How many bulls do you need to have your herd? One, right? Um, the bull is, is the most valuable. He's the figurative or symbolic head of all of the livestock. And so symbolically, he's, with, he's for the priest, for the high priest. Okay? The most expensive, this is going to be the biggest deal that's conveying. This is a really big deal when the high priest falls. Secondly, you have the leader of the flock. For him, it's the male goat. Okay? Um, where it's, it's not the, the bull, it's underneath of that, but it's a male goat without blemish. This is the symbolism of the chieftain or the leader, the elders. Okay? But then you have different members of the flock, and for them, the sacrifice is either a female goat or a female sheep. And this is symbolic of the laity. And here it's kind of embodying this biblical teaching of, of the male headship and then the, the female, um, the submissive position of the, the female. As I've talked about and preached about in recent months, you guys know that that's not a negative connotation for God to have this kind of ordering of creation, but he has ordered and ordained it in a certain way. And it's reflected even in the sacrifices themselves, where the members of the flock are, so to speak, the female goat or the female sheep. Does that make sense? I, this was not something I picked up on myself. Uh, biblical commentator John Kleinig was really the go-to guy on this. He points this out. I think this is just a fascinating kind of <coughs> connection that's, that's there, right in the very structure, symbolically, of the sacrifices. Uh, you know, when you get to this kind of teaching of sin being impartial, you can go to a text like Romans 3. And uh, I, won't, I won't go there now to go through all of them. But this is the passage that says, Therefore, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one is righteous. No, not one. Every last one of us. And in your opinion, this view of the impartiality of sin, what does this view of sin promote? Does it promote guilt, humility, equality, or D, all of the above? Oh. Probably D, right? Because Pastor put it up there. <laughs> it is, well, it's kind of a trick question. But as I was thinking about this, um, sin and the doctrine of original sin, sometimes um, folks who are out, outsiders um, to the faith will point to that and say, oh, look at how when you have a, a doctrine of sin, how it degrades people. You know, it lowers them and it, it makes them seem like they are have less dignity or something like that. And I don't think anything could be further from the truth. 
that in fact the, the doctrine of sin as we understand it um, is, has a leveling effect, right? It promotes equality because you recognize, you know, the, the highest of high and the lowest of all, we are all carrying the same human nature. Nobody is exempt from that. Nobody is able to say, well, I don't have to deal with sin. And so, yeah, it creates guilt, but it also ought to create humility because you recognize I'm humble before the Lord because all have sinned and fallen short. None are righteous. And then also equality because I'm able to see all people as fellow human beings. It's part of the genius of how the United States was, was structured right from the, the very beginning. That view that all people are created by God, yes, but also that all people are sinful. And so we need to have checks and balances in place. We need to have structures because left to their own devices, people are going to um, tend toward sinful practices. right? And so there's real practical ramifications to it. Parenting also. Mm. All right, where's my soapbox? Um, but, I mean, if you, if you go into parenting thinking what I read on the back of one of the little, like, kids' oatmeal boxes. I remember when, when Sam was real little, and Ann and I still laugh about this. Um, we, it was like a little kids' oatmeal kind of thing, and it said on the box, Your child is 100% pure. And so give him an oatmeal that will keep him pure. And was the idea, I guess. And I'm thinking, like, A... This is some really powerful oatmeal, right? <laughs> but B, really, 100% pure. Uh, that if you're setting yourself up for a failure as a parent, if you go in thinking my child is pure and I just got to make sure I don't contaminate him or corrupt him, like no, he's coming in the way I, I put it when talking about infant baptism. The kid comes out of the womb and he comes in, he's already on fire, right? Every, that's every single one of us. They need to be doused with the waters of holy baptism and to continually be forgiven and made new and made holy by God, right? All of us have sinned. I'm not picking on you particularly, Sam. Uh, it wasn't just you. Incidentally, we ate the oatmeal and he didn't sin until he was six. So, not true. Not true. Yeah. All right. Thoughts about this impartiality of, of sin or about how we see it in Leviticus 4 with all the different groups? Yeah, Carla. Do the other, do the other nations, countries, religions, world <coughs> thinking, do they have a, a doctrine of sin? Mm. Is there some negativity in Hindu or yeah. any of those? Yeah, that's a good question. So Carla's question is, do other, do other religions have a, a view of sin, a doctrine of sin? And the answer is yes. Everybody has to attest for this. But no other religion has as low what uh, Dave Zoll this summer called a low anthropology. Okay? Our anthropology is your view of human nature, which everybody has one. You, you don't have to go to college to have an anthropology. It's just what do you think humans are like? Right? And Dave says as, as Christians we have a low anthropology, which is you know, kind of low expectations of human nature. Um, other religions ha will have a doctrine of sin, though they probably won't use that term, um, but it's invariably a higher view of what people are capable of, that we are capable, and it, it goes right in hand with the doctrine of salvation, right? Because um, if, for instance, it's viewed as in Islam, that you are capable of um, being sufficiently obedient as to merit the approval and the acceptance of Allah, what that presupposes is, yeah, you might have sin, you might have to deal with that, but it doesn't, as we recognize, um, corrupt us fatally apart from a one-handed divine intervention. You know what I mean? The, the, the 
way that the scriptures talk about us is not just that you and I are kind of hobbled by sin. Like, all right, it's just something I got to get over, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to press on and be able to do it. But instead, Paul says in Ephesians 2, you are dead in your trespasses and sins, right? You're the, the little cartoon with the X's over your eyes. <laughs> That's you. And can a dead guy raise himself? Only if his name's Jesus, right? Otherwise, we need that outside intervention in order to raise us up. So it's a long answer to your question. But, so there is, there is that view of, of sin. I mean, this goes with why we need the sacrifices, right? We've talked about this, that this is across cultures, across um, history, this understanding that there has to be sacrifice. That goes along with that view of sin. The question is, are we capable of overcoming it? Yeah. Thank you. Other questions or reflections? Yeah, Hans. Yeah, just what you read earlier. Uh, the uh, priest, high priest, yeah. whatever, he said, that means all the people have sinned. Yes, right. And, <clears throat> and that's a concept we don't have today, per se. Per se, right. And it's like, we're going, well, if I sin, I sin. Then I have to ask for forgiveness. But if the neighbor sins, right. I have to ask for forgiveness too. Yeah. Maybe this says yes. Yeah, so I mean, it's a, it's a different view. I think uh, we're in our, our contemporary culture, and there's pros and cons to this, right? Um, we have a, a view, a very individualistic view, right? So my sin, my problem. The Old Testament scriptures very much have a view of it's a corporate problem. If one person has sinned, you see this again and again, um, the sin of Achan, for example, in Joshua 7. He, Achan sins, but then the whole community is being held to account because of this man's sin. Um, now, Ezekiel, prophet Ezekiel will come along later and he'll want to um, clarify that view saying, hey, look, um, everyone dies for their own sin. All right? It's not because of another person's sin that you and ultimately you're responsible and you stand in judgment for your own wrongdoing or, or rightdoing, as the case may be. Um, and the New Testament is going to ramp that up even more. But I think that we probably could stand to have a fuller sense of that, that corporate accountability especially as Christians and as the, the people of God. Yeah, for sure. Good. All right. Number two, sin is without excuse. Sin is without excuse. So I want to talk about this word right there from the beginning because the sin offering is for sins that are committed what? Unintentionally. Unintentionally. If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done, it doesn't give specific examples of this. What it probably has in view are transgressions of a ritual purity. Um, you ate some food that was unclean and you didn't realize it. You accidentally grazed a dead body, didn't mean to. I mean, these sort of, like you do, sorry. Uh, <laughs> whatever it might be, this kind of unintentional, that unintentional sin. Um, which raises the question, well, what about intentional sin. So how would that be dealt with or could that be dealt with? Go to uh, Numbers chapter 15. You know how it is, Terry. You're just walking along and oh my gosh, dead bodies laying there. It is October. It is October. That's a great point. Okay, so um, Numbers 15 it reiterates some of this teaching from Leviticus, but also clarifies different sorts of sin here. So Levit uh, Numbers 15, starting with verse 27. 
If one person sins unintentionally, he shall offer a female goat, a year old, for a sin offering. This is from the Hoi Polloi, right? And the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who makes a mistake when he sins unintentionally to make atonement for him. And he shall be forgiven. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among the people of Israel, and for the stranger who sojourns among them. But the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people, because he, has despi- because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be utterly cut off, his iniquity shall be on him. And then it continues with the story of a guy who broke the Sabbath and was summarily stoned. Um, okay. So, you have your unintentional sins, you have your intentional sins. You commit an unintentional sin, you need the sin offering in order to be atoned for, have your sin forgiven. If you commit an intentional sin with a high hand, what do you need to do in order to be forgiven? Nothing is named. You would get the impression that it's just, if you do that, you're toast. There's no hope for you. Now, how did this actually play out? I, I really, I have a lot of questions about this because you think, wait a second, was this not, was this less common, or were people just looking for loopholes constantly, like people continue to do or are prone to do? Uh, I, I don't have answers to all those questions, but suffice it to say, is viewed that if you were sinning with a high hand, if you, you know, basically you looked the Lord's law in its face and you said, I'm going in the other direction, I'm doing the opposite. There's no, there's no forgiveness that's named there. I mean, this is, this is a bleak, bleak situation. Only in the case of those unintentional sins. Uh, now, we'll come back to this, this idea. Um, but I want to, well, let's see. Go to uh, Acts chapter 3, which also takes up this, this idea. So, switch into the New Testament here briefly. All right, so Acts chapter 3, and this is uh, in part of Peter's preaching, and he's addressing Jews. He's addressing Jews who are there at the temple. And uh, starting verse 14, Peter says this, You denied the holy and righteous one, meaning Jesus, and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, unintentional, right? As did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out. Okay. So this is significant because uh, Peter, I mean, we would say, we would look at the uh, events that unfold in the Gospels and say, that sure looks like it's done with a high hand, right? Peter looks at it and he gives them the benefit of the doubt. He says, this you did in ignorance. So then he says, since you did it in ignorance, don't worry about it. You don't need to repent. No, you still need to repent, right? An unacknowledged or an unintentional sin is still a sin, even if you didn't mean to do it, 
And, you know, we talk about this in, in our household. Whether or not you meant to do it, you still need to apologize, right? You still need to ask forgiveness whether or not it was intentional. Because at the end of the day, like it says in the Psalms, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. We're all sinning all the time, even when we don't acknowledge it or recognize it. Okay? Uh, just because something might be unintentional doesn't mean that it's not still sinful. But what do you think about with this, uh, this contrast of the unintentional and intentional or deliberate uh, versus accidental? Um, what does that make you think of and how, how do you see that kind of playing out in the world? Is that a helpful distinction even to make? Or at the end of the day, is it like, well, sin is sin is sin, and so it doesn't really matter what the intention was? If it was with a high hand. Yeah, Carl. You know, there's, uh, is it wrong to drive your car 100 miles an hour? Is that a sin? Depends what country you're in, but continue. Right. Well, this is the point. Yeah. If you're an Aztec or a NASCAR driver, you're, uh, you're probably 70 miles under. Right. <laughs> but if you're on your way to the grocery store, you know, that's a whole different idea. Right, right. So I think discernment and asking for wisdom, you know, in the choices that we're making. Right. You know, and I, I, I think I questioned you a couple of weeks ago about Christ on the cross when he was making his last kind of will and testament in a sense. Yeah. Father, forgive them. Mm -hmm. They don't know what they're doing. Bingo. That's right. And I, I often wonder now, you know, how far are we going to go with this idea of my part in this? Did I repent? I remember I was going to parochial school, and our, uh, we had Herr Wortmann <laughs> was, was our teacher. In those days, you know, you had to have at least six months worth of SS training to be a Lutheran school teacher. You know? Oh, gosh. <laughs> you built the wish you were told. Pray without ceasing. He scared the crap out of us. Hmm. Pray without ceasing. I mean, we're lost. Right, exactly. You blew it already. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, this concept of Christ, the, the fulfillment of what I couldn't do that he did, and then declaring all of those Hell's Angels guys, you know, the Roman soldiers, the, the, uh, the, the hateful Jews that were terrified with fear that he was going to take over them or destroy the temple or something of this sort. Right. And he said, forgive them. Forgive them. Yep, that's right. And I, that verse, we'll, and we'll come back to that verse too, because Jesus saying that on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, it gives a perspective on all of our sins that ultimately, I don't think any of us ever realize how destructive our sin really is, right? None of us fully appreciate how our wrongdoing is impactful to us and to others. God knows that. And think about this, because God is able to see the awful ramifications of all of our wrongdoing. Not just what we did, but able to see all of those dominoes that also fell that you and I might mercifully not even be aware of. Um, and yet he takes all of that. He bundles all of that up and says, it's taken care of. It's finished. We could never cover all of that guilt, but that's what he has, has covered. But I'm getting ahead of myself just a little bit. All right, grab your uh, uh, diagram there if you've got one. 
This is another thing that's interesting about uh, this particular, um, and go back to Leviticus 4 as well, about this particular sacrifice of the sin offering. Because here, number three on your handout, this sin, it needs an inside job. And by that I mean, what we see here with the sin offering is that it's not just where all of uh, the sacrifices up to this point have been out in the outer court. So take a look at the, um, your diagram here. And this is, so this is the ground plan of the tabernacle, as though you're looking at it from above. Okay? And it's 100 cubits by 50 cubits. And uh, Ben was asking me, how big is it? Cubit a cubit is about a foot and a half, okay? about 18 inches. Um, so about 150 feet by 75 feet size of ground plan of the tabernacle split in half all right so the outer court you have the altar of burnt offering this is where all the sacrifices up to this point have been taking place okay but now with the sin offering it goes one step further so verse 4 of leviticus 4 he shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the lord and lay his hand on the head of the bull and kill the bull before the lord and the anointed uh, priest shall take some of the blood of the bull and bring it into the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. Now where's that veil? Or where's that curtain? You see it on the diagram? It's what's separating what's called the holy place from the holy of holies. Okay? So notice how it, there's this kind of almost concentric instead of concentric circles, concentric squares, as it were, um, where at the center of it, you have a 10 by 10 space, 15 by 15 foot space, the Holy of Holies. That's where the Ark of the Covenant dwells. Uh, this is the mercy seat. And later in Leviticus, we'll see the one time a year when the anointed priest, the high priest, went in there, which, anybody recall what it is? One day a year. Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. We'll, we'll see that later. Here, we have a kind of advance of a foretaste, if you will, of the Day of Atonement. You go in uh, up to the curtain. You don't go into the Holy of Holies, but you take your finger, you dip your finger in the blood, and you sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. That's where that's taking place. Underscores how near we need to get to God's heart in order to receive the forgiveness and atonement in the case of sin. This isn't just a burnt offering. It's not just a, a grain offering. For a sin offering, you've got to go right up right up to it. Only in, on the Day of Atonement, which is that, that day of the year in the, the Jewish sanctoral calendar, when all of the sins are going to be brought before the Lord. Uh, this is the next closest thing. So any questions about the, the diagram here or about kind of the, the layout of this? I uh, heard a couple of things. Becky said that they made a diagram, a diorama of it. She's going to rebuild it and bring it in for us next week. I look forward to that. No? Okay. Sorry. Uh, anybody else build a diorama of the Holy of Holies that you want to bring back? Okay. If you do, please bring it in because it would be super cool. Uh, George has, has a DVD uh, of it, and we might want to watch that at some point because there's so much um, that goes with Leviticus that's happening right there at the tabernacle. Uh, I think it's so important just to have that viewpoint of it. All right. Oh, there it is. Okay. So what is the function? What's the purpose of all of this? I mean, ultimately, it's that sin requires rectification. There's a fancy word for it. It needs to be put right. 
Things need to be put right. We need forgiveness. We need atonement. And this comes up again and again and again in here. So verse 20, verse 26, verse 31, verse 35, we hear God say it. Uh, verse, in verse 20, as he did with the bull of the sin offering, so shall he do with this. And the priest shall make atonement for them, and they shall be forgiven. <clears throat> again, verse 26. So the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin, and he shall be forgiven. Again, verse 31. And the priest shall make atonement for him, and he shall be forgiven. And then finally, the upshot of it, the last verse of the chapter, on top, place it on top of the food offerings, and the priest shall make atonement for, the, for him for the sin which he has committed, and he shall be forgiven. That's the goal and orientation of this whole thing. We've said this before, but uh, we need to keep that before us, that ultimately the purpose of this is forgiveness, that now that burden has been lifted. Uh, and something interesting I, I found in um, studying for this uh, particular section, the verb that's used to describe forgiveness here is only ever used in the Old Testament with God as the subject of the verb. So there's other words that are used for that people kind of forgiving one another, but this is a particular kind of forgiveness, right? The priest has a role in it, but he is just the mediator. God is the one who gives the forgiveness. He is the one who makes them holy and free. All right, one last thing about the sacrifice, and then I want to draw some connections to, to Jesus and, and to us. Uh, sin is blood guilty. It's one of these old King James words that I think is still a useful one to have. We, that blood guilt that we incur through sin. I mean, again, we've talked about this, the, how bloody it all is, but it's brought to the altar. It's sprinkled on the veil. It's applied to the horns, and it's poured out. There's blood everywhere. It's splashed all over the place. One particular detail when it comes to this blood, though, I wanted to ask you about. Did you notice how many times the blood was sprinkled? Seven. Okay, what's that about? Think, put your you know, Bible thinking caps on. Where else do we see seven show up in the scriptures? Creation, right? Um, God rests on the seventh day, but that, that sense of um, this is how God has created things. And from that, then, seven becomes this number of, of completion, perfection, of fulfillment. Flipping all the way ahead to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, it talks about the churches. How many churches are there? There's seven churches as well. And there's the seven seals. I think they made that into a movie also, right? Um, the, the seven shows up again and again, and multiples of seven as well. Um, because this is that number of, of completion and wholeness. And so seven times the blood is sprinkled. Sprinkled. And that verb is significant. Showing up later in Isaiah 52 and 53, this great passage of the suffering servant, says, as many were astonished at you, his appearance, the suffering servant, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. But now... The suffering servant, ultimately fulfilled in Christ Jesus, he's the one who sprinkles the nations. All right, now I want to draw some connections to Jesus, but before I do, any other um, questions or reflections on the sin offering? Yeah, go ahead, hon. I hate to be on the altar guild. I hate to be on the altar guild. <laughs> Fair enough. But all that blood. Yes, you think it's hard getting volunteers now, you know. Just... <laughs> 
Well, no, I mean, this is a, a great point. George raised about the hygiene of it. I mean, there were so... Flies, flies around. Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. How diligent and vigilant they had to be with the cleanliness of it at, at the same time. Um, we didn't really touch on this, but you notice, um, go to look at verse 12, oh, verses 11 and 12 of Leviticus 4. <coughs> the skin of the bull and all its flesh, with its head, its legs, its entrails, and its dung, all the rest of the bull, he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place to the ash heap, and shall burn it up on a fire of wood. On the ash heap it shall be burned up. So all this is taken outside of the camp. It's kind of like at, at the parsonage we've got the compost pile, right? We've got the compost pile away from the house. That's, we're going to take the stuff out there. Um, of course, I don't put in any entrails or loaves of this sort of thing. Um, but you, you put it out there. This is kind of the idea, away from the, the camp. And then the book of Hebrews, it'll tell us that Jesus also had to be sacrificed outside the camp as though he were being treated just like refuse and just to be forgotten. Yeah, Carl. You know, the, the, uh, I recall I taught uh, Bible class routines for about 25, 26 years. Yeah. And I would take my students into the church oftentimes to look at some of the symbols that we had. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. in the day... That, ours is a very old parish church in an old German style and it had a lot of these symbols in it. No one remembered what they were for. Yeah, right. And uh, I sit, you know, here I sit down by the, by the, uh, the baptism plot. Yeah. That's eight-sided. Yes. Yeah. Reason being is it's seven days of creation and then the next is the new yes. creation. That's right, the eighth, the day. eighth day. And, uh, you know, as Lutherans, I think we've always had trouble... <clears throat> dealing with sanctification. Mm -hmm. We're not quite sure how that really fits in for us. Mm -hmm. we, like, we like the concept of sin and, and that, the right. part. You know, the forgiveness we, part, yeah. Yeah, and, but then what is, you know, what is this new creation in Christ? Yeah. You know, what part of that is me now? You know, in, in eternity, you know, it's always a now. Right. So the tension is, is that I have both. We're living in both, that's right. We live in the eighth day, as it were. Yeah. Um, and, and so that, that's an interesting point. I mean, of course, Israelites would be circumcised on the eighth day. Um, and this, again, in looking at with, uh, I talked about baptism before, um, in the history of the church, why was baptism regarded in part as something that would be done even to infants? Because baptism is the fulfillment of circumcision. And so if you would circumcise them on the eighth day, of course, you're also going to baptize them straight away too. It's not the only reason why, but that's, um, that's one connection that's made. Um, but I think he raised an interesting point, Carl, does about the sanctification, that is to say, our continued growth and holiness. And I think something like the sin offering can actually help us wrap our mind around this because sin offering is fundamentally about repentance, right? This is a, a visual, visceral um, practice of repentance, of turning away from sin. And you remember, we're coming up on Reformation Day. Martin Luther had his 95 theses, right? And nobody knows all 95 theses. I, I, won't, I won't say that. Like we have them all, okay? But it's not the kind of thing that the confirmation kids are not memorizing the 95 theses, all right? They're mostly against indulgences and, and other medieval practices. But the first one, the first thesis, which is worth remembering, um, because in many ways it expresses this whole theology, is that when our Lord Jesus said, repent, he meant for the whole life of a Christian to be one of repentance. 
so that every morning when you and I rise, if we are given the gift of another day, we rise recognizing I'm living a new life. I have a new day. And I'm starting offering this sin offering, if you will, of rising anew, living a life of repentance, where I'm going to seek to follow my Lord more faithfully. Am I going to fall flat on my face? Well, yeah, of course you are. Uh, but we live in that daily cycle of repentance and renewal. At night, we lay, now I lay me down to sleep, pray the Lord my soul to keep, and if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. It's a kind of daily dying. It's a rehearsal for death, really, when we go to sleep. And then uh, we awake in the morning. It's an anticipation of resurrection and that commitment to uh, repentance and striving to live into that new reality, that eighth day that we have there. So, yeah, that's kind of a little bit of a digression. But you know, the, the pulpit is also, if you continue that around, yeah. that's also got eight sides. Well, and so, okay, now you're just getting me off topic. But um, <laughs> I love doing this with the confirmation kids too. We'll go in, we'll do field trips to the sanctuary because there's so much symbolism in there. It's one of the things, where'd my soapbox go again? Okay. <laughs> With modern sanctuaries, they, we just, you know, we just build the churches and we make it look like an auditorium. And there's a stage. When I went down and I preached at this conference a couple of weeks ago down in Frankenmuth, God bless them. I love our friends in Frankenmuth. They have this beautiful church, St. Lawrence, and they have a wonderful new facility. And, uh, but in the new facility, it's a big stage up front. And I almost didn't know what to do with myself, right? I like just being in the pulpit and uh, give me some room. As you guys know, I tend to talk with my hands. Um, but I had this big stage. I'm like, what do, what do I do up here? Um, and I, th what they've done nicely there is they've put up some stained glass along the sides and tried to, to bring that along. But just think about the symbolism of in the old traditional sanctuaries like ours where the pulpit is elevated because the pastor is so cool and you want to make sure you see him? No, because it's exalting the word of God, right? That's what matters most. Now, I had a practical need too, right? In the days before amplification, like you kind of needed it up there. Many of you know this. Our pulpit was actually about three feet higher originally. It was lowered at some point. We have pictures of how, how it used to be. Um, but another point of symbolism with it is it was meant to look, it was intended to look like a chalice. Um, and you can see if you go in there and, and look at it again after you can kind of see the, the bottom of it where the, the pulpit itself kind of looks like a chalice. Another place where God is pouring forth his gifts of forgiveness, life, and salvation. I, oh, man, some powerful stuff there, right? Um, and we just trade it for some bean soup of a stage. I don't know. It yeah. Used to also be a that was above it. Yes, that's right. We still got it. Yes, we do. If anybody. We got an Eagle Scout or maybe a confirmation project. We still have what's called cupola. Is that what you said? Yeah, um, which is like a, a canopy that was over the pulpit. And I don't actually know what all the significance of that is. I understood it to cover the chalice. Okay, like the covering of the chalice. That makes oh, sense. Okay. We still have it. It's down in the creepy basement. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's another field trip. Resurrection. Exactly, yeah. Again, just that they, oftentimes in the Reformation, after the Reformation, the churches that were built in, uh, in a sense, to rebuke the yeah. Catholic concept of, the, of the, uh, the altar being higher than the word or something of this yeah, yeah. they would place the, altar, or the, the, the pulpit higher than the altar just as a symbol. Yeah. 
rather than you know then now I mean word and sacrifice or uh, word and, and, uh, and sacrament sacrament yeah yeah they're the same but there was a time when yeah. you know they they were struggling with this yet. Well, there, yeah, I mean, this was a big difference. In Lutheran churches, where now preaching and the Word of God, it wasn't just about the Mass and the altar. It was about preaching, too. Pulpit. And so architecturally, there's a lot of theology to it. Yeah. And, and that came through post-Reformation. All right, let me give you just uh, a few final thoughts on Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate sin offering. We know this. But there's two scriptures which make this, this point and this connection explicitly for those with eyes to see. So first go to Romans chapter 8. This whole, whole chapter of Romans 8, one of my very favorite in the, in the New Testament. <clears throat> okay, so Romans 8, starting with the verse, first verse. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his, his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Now my uh, scripture has a footnote and maybe yours does as well where it says... Where, um, it says, in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, my note says, or and as a sin offering. Because Paul uses the same phrase there in the Greek that's used in the Greek translation, the Septuagint, of Leviticus chapter 4. We have that same connection. You okay? Yeah. I, okay, good enough. <laughs> Use Septuagint in a sentence, right? Um, Paul uses the same thing here. And so he's drawing this connection that, that Jesus is the sin offering. He is the one who now fulfills that. And similarly, um, maybe I just put on, yeah, 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, or literally to be a sin offering who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is the sin offering that ends all sin offerings. No more need to be done. He is the, the consummate sacrifice before the Father. So that, finally, number seven on your handout, in Christ, God forgives all sin, both unintentional and deliberate, all taken up into his mercy. It's all been washed clean. And I wanted to end with, we kind of um, jumped it already, but, you know, that word from our Lord. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus on the cross deals with, addresses, forgives, and makes whole and holy all of God's people so that all sin is taken care of. Yeah, Becky. So the first thing I wrote down when you had, which is worse up there, yeah. was, so should we tell people? Should we hold each other accountable? Right. Or should we rest in this, know not what I do? Yes. Okay, this is a great question. So Becky's question is, so should we tell people? Should, would, would we be, are we better, be better off, you know, some variation of the whole ignorance is bliss kind of thing, right? Um, is it better off for us just to stay in the dark and not know our sin or not be called to account for that? All right, I've got some thoughts there, but let me open that up to you all. What, what do you, how would you respond to that? Is it better just to keep people in the dark for ourselves, for others? 
Someone's straying? Yeah, Lily. As parents, you should. Okay, as parents, you should for your kids. Don't leave me in the dark. Don't leave me in the dark. Okay, I'll let you guys talk to each other. <laughs> but, um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, there, I think 100%. Yeah, Tara. Some topics, though, you need to bring to you for you to tell them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's true, too. Other thoughts? What do you, what do you think? Yeah, Esther. Well, Galatians, we're talking, you know, to, to bring it to another's attention. Uh-huh. You know, and very carefully and gently. Yeah. You know, yeah. so, yeah, yep. we should. Yeah, so um, Esther, Esther says, yeah, we should, as it says in Galatians 6, you know, um, to bring that sin to another's attention, but to do so with gentleness, right, um, and to lead them to forgiveness, um, but the point is not to say nanner, nanner, nanner. Like, um, okay, good. Yeah, Carl? There are, you know, even from the sense of sanctification, you know, what type of a life we're going to have here and lead here, it's almost on a cellular basis where if you hate, if you have resentments, if you lead, and if you live your life that way, you ultimately will, the cells will react to this in a way that you'll have disease oftentimes. Right. Uh, and ill health and short life and misery. So I think, you know, from the standpoint of sanctification, being able to, I know as Lutherans we struggle with that yeah. because of that works righteousness concept. Right. But I think there is a part there that's really important. Yeah. You know, for the, I'm 79, I got one foot in a grave and the other on a banana peel. You know, so well, in a sense. I didn't put you a day past 78, Carl. I didn't put you a day past 78. Yeah. I know what 78 is about, but I don't know what 79 is. Yeah. <laughs> it's still a mystery. But it, so, you know, from that standpoint, uh, the parts of my life that were outside yeah. of, say, God's will, in that sense, outside of his commandments, out, right. which maybe are more commitments than right. commandments in that sense, right. uh, my life has been much better. Hmm. This life. Sure. You know, so even from that standpoint. Right. Stepping into eternity, the last thing I'm going to do, my old carcass is going to drop on one side of the door and I'm going to step into the other. And I'm not going to say, well, that's not the way I learned it. Right. <laughs> uh, this, I think, uh, Becky, to, to your question, I mean, my, my thoughts on this are that I think if we were still living under the old covenant of the sense of the grades of sin, there would be incentive for us to constantly keep things you know, to try and act as though they were unintentional or, you know, if, if we knew somebody else was in a, a place of sin to say, all right, I'm not going to tell them because I, I don't want to mess it up for them. But now, because Christ Jesus has covered all sin and because we know that to live in sin, kind of to Carl's point, is not the best way for us as humans to live. Mm -hmm. Jesus says to Saul, Saul, uh, before he becomes Paul, why do you kick against the goads? Okay? Why are you kicking against the spurs? Uh, which is a way of saying, when we live in sin, um, it, ultimately, it's not what's best for us. See? It's not to live in the, the fullness and the wholeness of what God has called us to. And so we do no one any favors when we leave them in a state of ignorance and darkness, nor ourselves. Now, the trick is to do so. I trust Esther to bring things up to me with gentleness and respect. I don't always trust myself to do that for others, right? That, that's hard. And we do it in the context of, of love and compassion for others, wanting, recognizing that the whole Christian life for all of us is one of repentance, and nobody has escaped sin. So, any last thoughts? Go ahead, Hans in the back. Um, 
burnt offering, the grain offering, and the fellowship offering. Yes. They were all voluntary. Yeah. This, this one's commanded. This one is yep. mandatory. Yes, exactly. That's exactly right. Uh, so Hans points out all the first three chapters were all voluntary sacrifices. This is one you've got to do. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, man. Uh, I'm still just kind of struggling with that concept of forgiving intentional sin. There must be a boundary somewhere in there between like repenting or or not. You know, if you're just hardened and you continue to do what you know is sin, right. and you do it in spite of the wisdom that you've been given, yeah. is that forgivable? Well, okay, so this I mean this is a good question. If you're if you're going to live in a state of persistent sin without repentance, then no, you're not going I mean, is it forgivable? Yeah, it's forgivable. Um, but it's you're not living in forgiveness because you're clinging to your sin instead. Forgivable if you repent. Exactly, yes, exactly. So it's not an unforgivable offense. Um, but, I mean, this is what, even in the New Testament, and the book of Hebrews especially talks about this, that if we persist in a state of, of rejection of the Lord, and this is what we call the unforgivable sin, where you just, I refuse to, I refuse to repent and refuse to receive your forgiveness, that alone is, is the unforgivable sin. In other words, refusing to receive forgiveness and turning from, from our sin. Um, so I don't know, but it, it is. I mean, it's like, how do, we, how do we parse this out? And this is where I would say, in many cases, it's not necessarily for us to have to figure it out. It's, you know, somebody before the Lord, but we can still gently call them to, to repentance. Yeah, Bill. I may be a little off track on this. I don't know if I am, then correct me. But it seems as though that approach, the Christian, the Judeo-Christian approach, which is... Uh, very much an individualistic approach. In other words, it's me and God. Mm -hmm. And if, if I come before him, he will forgive my sins. He's not capricious. He's not like the Greek gods right. or the Egyptian gods or many other gods. Uh, but the tension that occurs is the Western civilization since the time of actually around Luther, since the Enlightenment. It's a very individualistic society that says, you're on your own, right. I'm on my own. Right. And, and so I think we continually over history see the conflict between me being my own keeper yeah. and a group saying, you have, you know, it, it, it's this tension between tribalism and the individual. Sure, right. They constantly, and so it, it, it pulls apart, and it's very difficult uh, in tribalistic times to to, to minimize that. Uh, right. So it's the tension between the individual and the tribe. Yes. Right. That fluctuates. Yeah. No, I think this. I think this, this is a good point, and that um, what I hear you saying too is that in the last 500 years, uh, perhaps especially in, the, in Western culture, things have flown so far in the direction of the individual that oh, it loses absolutely. that corporate sense, the, the community side of it. It's and, almost vanished. Yeah. And, and it's, trying to be, it's trying to revive itself, as we see. Right. And the things I have to get, you know, but things like Facebook and Instagram are, are feeding that <laughs> revival of tribalism. 
You mean that Facebook is not without sin? I, I don't understand. Or that this week wasn't the best week for many people when Facebook went down? No, um, no, yeah, you're right. And so as Christians, we, we hold on to both of those, the corporate, the communal, and also the, the individual and the personal. And it's both of those at, at the same time, we want, and we want to keep them, keep them together. So, yeah, Carl. That's well, oftentimes, uh, as humans, I think we have a tendency, at least I have, I, I find myself at times with my first thought sometimes being my worst one. Right. You know, it's my second thought that comes in. Yeah, exactly, right. It things up a little bit. But my first thought is to always react to somebody else's behavior as though somehow or other I'm the judge here. Sure. I don't know what shaped them. Right. I don't know what corrupted them. I don't know what it, you know, along the course of their life. And there's oftentimes there's a reaction out of what people are doing out of a fear. Yeah. Well, and this is, I'll, I'll, I'm well, just going to, okay, sorry, go ahead. Your second thought, go ahead. Because <laughs> St. Paul, you know, when he said, you know, the good that I wished I did do, yes, you know, right. famously, you know, but I don't do it. Uh, only God can read the heart of an individual. I have no business reading somebody else's heart. Now, I can read their behavior in the sense of sure. reject parts of this. Yeah. But to not recognize them as being maybe a, product of their whatever it was. I mean, we came into this world for a moment, probably, if it was such a word as pure, the purest we were ever going to be. And from that moment on, we had well-meaning people taking over our mind, body, and souls. Right. And doing what they wished with them. It's all downhill from there. Well, on that note, uh, (laughs) thank you guys. Uh, Sorry to keep you a little bit long here today, but uh, it's always good to study the scriptures next week. Uh, Pastor Johnson will be here. He's going to do his own kind of study. We'll take a week off from Leviticus and then pick up with chapter 5 in two weeks. See you then. Thanks.